let me start off this way. We're going to do a do-over. I have some good news, City Light. I did some, some checking into some things this week and a little bit of research, and guess what I found out? The tomb's still empty. The tomb is still empty, amen? Jesus is still alive. In fact, what we're going to be doing, I'm excited because this morning we're going to kick off a new series that we're going to be in for the remainder of the spring and likely into the summer for about the next four months or so. We're going to be taking a look at the book of Acts. And Acts is written by the same author um, as the Gospel of Luke. Dr. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And the book of Acts is actually the sequel to the prequel, which was the Gospel of Luke. And what we're going to take a look at is the story of after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, how he sends his Holy Spirit, how he continues and even multiplies his ministry through his spirit and through his church and through his people. In fact, I'm going to waste no time. Let me show you our very first verse. Let's put it back on the screen. Look at the way the gospel or the um, book of Acts chapter one, verse one. You with me, Kathy? Here it is. The whole book starts this way. In the first book, he's talking about the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus. That's likely the dude that like funded the writing ministry of Luke. In the first book, the gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus, this is key, read it with me, began to do and teach. Okay, so he's saying this whole book that I just got done writing, I, I want you to know I was only dealing with what Jesus began to do and teach. What that means is Jesus isn't done doing. You with me? Wake up nine o'clock. I'm preaching. Are you in the room? What this, nod your head. I can see you. What this means is Jesus isn't done doing. If, if the whole book of Luke was about what Jesus began to do and teach, the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach. And what I want to tell you this morning is he still ain't done doing. He still ain't done doing what he does. Thank you, Steve, for waking up with me this morning. What, uh, what we're going to be seeing over the next four months is that, that actually things get better. Uh, you read the gospel and you see Jesus' ministry, and, and uh, I remember reading the gospels for the first time, and my heart was kind of like, no, Jesus can't go. The story can't be over, but Jesus promised his disciples that when I leave, things will be better for you because I'm going to send the, the, the helper, the Holy Spirit to come inside of you. And what we're going to see in the 28 chapters of Acts is that when the Holy Spirit moves into the church, we actually see the ministry of Jesus multiply. We see a multiplicative movement of disciple making. We see a multiplicative movement of church planting that goes throughout the entire known world at the time. So disciples of Jesus are filled with the spirit of Jesus and then multiply disciples of Jesus. The churches of Jesus are filled with the spirit of Jesus and the churches multiply churches of Jesus. And what's so amazing about these 28 chapters is that um, even though it's intense, even though it's loaded, what we're reading is like, only the first five dominoes that are going to fall over. And if you trace that line all the way to its end, we'll see that it catches up with our own stories and our own church. What we're reading right here is the prequel to an entire movement that actually catches up with me the first time I heard the gospel message and you the first time you heard the gospel message and us as a church community as we seek to multiply disciples and churches. What we're reading this morning, City Light, is family history. This is how it all began. This is our story. This isn't just page or words on the pages of an ancient text. This is a living word that tells the story of how you and I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I want to show you this this morning because it's, it's not just a, a, a note of history. 
This is actually a, 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 a prototype and a pattern and a very picture of what God is doing in and among our church community and in and among our lives. And so this morning, to just get our feet wet in the book of Acts, I want to show you in the first 11 verses, primarily focusing on verse 8, how the church received the presence of God, the power of God, and the purpose of God. And in fact, that's going to be my outline. So if you're um, type A like me and you like to know where I'm going, uh, we're going to talk about the presence of God, the power of God, and the purpose of God. Yes, they all start with P, because when, that's what I do. When you guys are working real jobs during the week, I'm making words start with the same letter. So uh, it's a high calling. It's a high calling. Uh, Let me show you verses 4 and 5. That's actually where I want to start off this morning, to talk about the presence of God. And remember, the setting is this. Jesus was crucified, died, buried, rose again, and he's now... uh, in his 40-day period wherein he's on uh, the earth. He's appeared to, to great crowds, upwards of 500 people, giving evidence and witness to his resurrected physical body. And in this moment, the beginning of Acts, he's actually spending some final moments with his disciples right before, at the end of the passage that Nicole read, he ascends back up into heaven. So these are kind of his final instructions to his church. And so look with me at verse 5 as we look, about, um, look at the presence of God. It says in verse 4, And while staying with them, that's the resurrected Jesus and talking to his disciples, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. That's key. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus tells his disciples at the very beginning, he says, don't leave Jerusalem. Okay, the city that we're in, I want you to stay here. I want you to not go anywhere. I want you to stay in this city. Now, that's important. He wants them to stay in Jerusalem. Why? Uh, to the original disciples, as they hear this, this is not good news to them. They don't want to stay in Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you why in just a second, but let me tell you a quick story to get there. When I was uh, a student at UNO, I think I was a, uh, a junior, and I had a motorcycle at the time, and so did my roommate and best buddy Todd. And There was one Wednesday night where me and Todd and two of our other friends that also had motorcycles, uh, we went to a Bible study, and I helped lead the Bible study. And then after the Bible study, we were going to go to a prayer gathering for our college ministry at the church. And we were on our motorcycles, and we're going from the Bible study to the prayer gathering, and um, we might have exceeded the speed limit a little. Now, don't judge. I was a new Christian, okay? The sanctification was early in its development in my heart. And so um, we might have exceeded the speed limit a little bit. Unbeknownst to us, there was a police officer, uh, all respect to the authority, uh, that was following us, but we didn't know it. So he's trailing us, like just taking inventory, right? We, we have no idea, okay, they did that, uh, no blinker. And so he's just riding this inventory of all the laws that we're breaking. Still don't know the cops behind us, and we come up to a red light. And I decide, why start driving on two wheels when you can start on one wheel? Because... I mean, to go from four to two is fun, but to go from two to one is even more fun. And again, I have three buddies and sanctification is green still, remember that? So I think I'm going to start on on one wheel. And so the light turns green and I go on one wheel. And my little stunt was all it took for the cop to say, okay, that's the one I want. He just, like one last tally, that's the big fish. Let the little fish go, I'm going to get the big fish. And so uh, sure enough, woo, here he comes, pulls me over. And what was exceedingly unfortunate about the whole event, on top of many other things, was I was only like two blocks from the prayer gathering. 
And so everyone that's going from the Bible study to the prayer gathering is now, because I had been speeding, got ahead of them, but now they're all catching up. And so there's Gavin on his motorcycle in the red and blue lights awaiting the ticket, and everyone's driving. Isn't that my Bible study leader? Isn't that the guy that was just teaching me Romans 13, obey the authorities of the land? And so there I am. Now, now let me ask you, what do you think the other three motorcycle riders did? Do you think they, out of courtesy, pulled over and waited for me? No! They got out of Dodge! They didn't go to the prayer gathering two blocks away. They didn't slow down. They rode to Council Tucky. They just kept going east. Get me out of the city of Omaha, and I don't blame them. I don't blame In fact, I was happy to do it. You guys ride because he's got a lot of zeros to ride in on my find, and that's going to take some time for him to get all the zeros and commas next to the dollar sign for all the laws that I broke. So you guys keep on riding. Now, I say that to say this. Picture the disciples in this moment. Uh, They're not from Jerusalem. Remember that. Most of these disciples are Galilean. They're from about 100 miles north, and they've come to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. So they've come to worship God during Passover, but Passover is now done, and they're in the city of Jerusalem. And remember what just happened. They just saw their leader, Jesus of Nazareth, um, falsely accused, uh, given a bogus trial, and then murdered on a Roman cross. And so what are the disciples doing in this moment? They're hiding. And I don't blame them. I would be too, and so would you. You just saw Jesus get crucified. And the next thing on their agenda, they're writing out their agenda, On their iPhone notes, next thing, leave Jerusalem, right? Get out of this town, get on our motorcycles, ride to Council Tucky, get out of Omaha, whatever it takes, right? And so imagine you're them, you're riding your agenda, you've got MapQuest out, and then the resurrected Jesus comes and says, hey, uh, before I go, I want to tell you one thing, don't leave. Stay here. Don't leave Jerusalem, wait, Wait in the city where you just watched me get murdered, and you know that they're coming for you next. I want you to stay in this city and wait. And so the question is why? What's going on? What is going on in this first chapter of Acts? Why is everything so centered around Jerusalem, and they need to stay there, and they need to wait? Here's why. Stay with me. Something very significant is about to happen in our text. One of the most Pivotal moments and understanding how God deals with and interacts with his people is about to happen. See, remember, the temple of God was in Jerusalem. And at one point in Israel's history, God's presence was manifested with his people through um, a pillar of fire and through a pillar of smoke as they wandered through the wilderness. At one point in Israel's history, God's presence was manifested in the Ark of the Covenant that the people of God took with them as they journeyed. And, And most recently, God's very presence, the dwelling place of God on earth, was in the temple in Israel. In, in the innermost room of the temple in a place called the Holy of Holies. This was a small room, the very center of the temple. Um, and this was the place where no one went. In fact, only one person went. It was the high priest. And even he only went one time a year. That was the Day of Atonement. And even then, he only went after a very arduous and significant uh, uh, sacrificial ceremony and and ceremonial cleansing, reminding the people and himself that that, that man and God are separated by our sin and no man has business being in the presence.
presence of a holy and righteous God unless there be a sacrifice, unless there be blood, unless there be a cleansing of our sin. And so it was reserved only for this day when one person could go in to the presence of God in this place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt, was separated from the rest of the temple by a 60-foot curtain that was four inches thick. Okay, that's some significant drapery. That stuff's expensive. Um, Just try buying curtains. Four inches thick, uh, 60 feet tall. Uh, This giant curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. That's where the presence of God was behind the curtain. Now, stay with me. This is still important. Luke 23, verse 35 says that when Jesus was crucified, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Top to bottom is important because it signifies that this act came from above. This is a heavenly act. Something happened. The curtain is torn from top to bottom, wherein the very presence of God is now exposed. Wherein the very barrier between God and man has now been separated. The holy of holies has been exposed. And then, this is all part of the transition. Look at Acts 1, verse 8. This is important. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What is about to happen is beyond significant. It can't be overstated, the transition that is about to happen in regards to how God interacts with and interfaces with his people. What Jesus is saying is, disciples, I need you to stay in Jerusalem because the temple is about to transfer to you. The temple is about to transfer to you. My presence is no longer going to be in a box or in a building. My presence is no longer going to be veiled in a temple. Sin has been atoned for in my body on the cross once and for all. And my presence will now be with my people. The temple is going to transfer to you. Now, in the next chapter, we're going to read what's called Pentecost. Pentecost was the season in the early church where the Holy Spirit drops from heaven, invades the hearts and lives of his people. And since that time, anytime, anywhere, anyone places their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside your heart. The temple has transferred to you. This is what Colossians 1 calls a great mystery. It's a profound mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory, city light, I'm judging by your facial expressions, you don't fully appreciate what this means. What this means is, is a, if you're a Christian, God isn't just up there somewhere. He's right here. It means that God is as near to you as the breath in your own lungs, that God is no longer out there, but he's right here and dwelling the heart of a Christian. What it means is that if your faith is in Jesus, God is with you, God is in you, God is for you. It means if your faith is in Jesus, God is available to you, as available to you on a Tuesday as he is on a Sunday. It means that to interact with Jesus, to connect with God, you don't need to travel to some building. You don't need to fulfill some arduous religious ceremony or practice. You don't need to meet with some expert. You have the presence of God right inside of you. Very practically, it means you don't need to feel alone anymore. Some of you feel alone and you don't need to. What this means is that God no longer communicates his love and care for you by just words and sentiment, but with proximity and presence, God is with you. God is with you. God is for you and God is in you. Listen to me. For some of you, your earthly father missed the baseball game. Maybe he missed every birthday party. Uh, maybe he wasn't at your wedding. Maybe there's some, been some people in your life that were supposed to stay committed to you and they bailed on you and they're no longer present. But what this is telling us is that your heavenly father, 
He hasn't left you since the moment he saved you. And he promises to never leave you nor forsake you. God is with you. The temple has transferred to you. Now let me just ask you, do you live your life with a daily conscious awareness of God's presence in your life? Because the fact is, the Bible tells us he's with you. The only question is, do you, do you know it? Do you realize it? Do you live your life with a daily conscious awareness that the Holy Spirit of God is inside of you? He is near to you. He is with you. He is in you. Listen, one of the most shaping, one of the most important disciplines in my own walk with God since I've been a Christian has been developing a daily conscious awareness that God is with me. God is not an idea. He's not a philosophy. He's not a worldview. He is a personal God who is present with me, ministering to me, entering into my situations and struggles with me. And so let me ask you, if the temple is transferred to you, what would it look like in your life if you woke up every morning and just simply reminded yourself that God was with you? That God was with you. That God was in you. That his spirit was inside of you. That that he was there to empower you to live a life that honors him and love people every day. What would your life look like? What would our church look like if we really develop this conscious awareness that, that God is no longer just up there or out there, but God is in here? in the hearts of his people, speaking real time through his words, speaking uh, through the Holy Spirit that leads us to all truth, ministering to our hearts. How would that affect our whole church culture if we actually realized that Jesus was here? I think we'd get a little bit more excited about his presence in this place. Jesus is here. That's what Acts is telling us, that God went from there to here and to here. The temple has transferred to you. The dwelling place of God is now with us. So Jesus in the flesh has ascended into heaven, but Jesus through the Holy Spirit has come to dwell inside here to be personally present inside of each one of us. So the first thing I want you to take home this morning in our study in the book of Acts is the presence of God. He's present with you. He's inside of you. The second thing I want you to see, and my second point, is that there's a power that comes with the presence. There's a power of God that comes with the presence of God. Let me show you this. Look with me one more time at what is our key verse for today. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Throw it on the screen. It says this. But you will receive what? Say it. Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. One thing I've learned in life is that when the demands on you exceed the resources that are inside of you, that's when you tap out, check out, and burn out. When the demands on you exceed the resources that are inside of you, that's when you tap out, burn out, and check out. I've been there. There's been seasons of my life where the demands of, of just the Christian life and family and ministry and money and relationships, they can just seem overbearing. And I've learned very quickly that unless I tap into a power source greater than my own reserves, I'm done. I'm done. I need a power that I don't have intrinsic to my own being. And, and I know that I'm not alone. I think one of the greatest needs for the average Christian walking with God is a sense of power. Throughout the week as I meet with people, as I disciple men, as I listen to the people in our church and in counseling and the various meetings that I find myself in, the most common denominator behind so many of the struggles and situations that people find themselves in is a lack of power. I, I feel powerless over my sin. I want to break free, but I just can't. I feel 
powerless at home. I want to be able to lead my family, but I just don't know how. I feel powerless in my marriage. I've tried everything I could to hold it together, but I just can't make it work, and I don't think I can hang on any longer. I feel powerless in my witness. I don't know how to talk about Jesus. I care about my neighbors and the ministry that God has called me to do, but I just feel powerless. Christian, dial in. I want you to know this morning, very earnestly, very sincerely, there is a resource inside of you. There's a power inside of you. There's a person inside of you. His name is the Holy Spirit and his reserves can never be exhausted. His well never runs dry. His power never runs low. And when you think you're at your end, he's only just begun. When you feel overwhelmed, the Holy Spirit loves to kick it in high gear. When you feel like your situation is beyond the scope of your abilities, take heart. You're in a great place because the Holy Spirit is an expert in showing up and doing what you couldn't do on your own. I want you to know this morning that the Holy Spirit does a whole lot more than just give you goosebumps during a worship song. He might do that, or that might have just been the bass guitar when that kicked in, because sometimes that does it to me. And I want you to know the Holy Spirit's role in your life is a lot more than getting you excited when the preacher gets kind of animated and raises his voice and jumps up and down to lead you to a place emotionally. He does a whole lot. He, he, might, he speaks through songs. He can speak to you through a sermon. He often does. But I want you to know that he does so much more than that. And I long for us as a church to get acquainted with him, to tap into that power, to learn how to trust him for more than goosebumps. I want you to know the Holy Spirit is God himself living inside you, living his life in and through your life. He is your, the source of your strength. He is the strength of your life. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Anyone in a time of trouble? Where's your present help? It's the Holy Spirit. He convicts of sin and righteousness. He leads us to all truth. He is our great counselor. He leads, guides, convicts, encourages, strengthens, comforts, empowers, enables the Christian for everything we need. We know he's active in our life because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is when we are what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. (laughs) You know he's present when you experience those things. And I want you to know if your faith is in Jesus, his power is in you. If your faith is in Jesus, his power is in you. Now, on a practical note, you might be thinking that's, that's great. Preacher sentiment. Tell me again, jump up and down, because that makes me feel warm and fuzzy, but very practically, I've heard a sermon just like this before, and I've yet to experience the power of God in my life, so very practically, how do I get there? Okay, I want to be helpful to you as your pastor this morning, but I also want to be candid. I've been a Christian for about 16 years, and I feel like I'm only now just barely learning how to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit in my daily life. I don't want to pretend to be an expert, to be the resident um, source of authority on this, but, but I, I will just simply share with you a few things that I have learned from Scripture and from my own experience. Number one, um, I've learned this. In Galatians 5.16, Paul is writing to the church in Galatians. These are believers. When you believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, not part of him, all of him, because he's a person, not a power. You can't subdivide him. You get all of him. So he's writing to people who have the Holy Spirit, and then he says to them in chapter 5, if you live by the Spirit, then walk in him. In verse 16, he commands us, he says, then walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what that tells me. It's very possible to possess the Holy Spirit, but not to walk in his power. 
But it also tells me that if Paul commands us in verse 16 that we are to walk in his power, then it must be that we can obey that command or he wouldn't tell us to do it. You with me? So it's possible for us to possess the Holy Spirit, but to not walk in him. But it's also possible for us to walk in him or Paul wouldn't have told us to do it. Still with me? It's the first thing I've learned. It's not a guarantee that you're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit just because he is indwelling your life, which he is if you're a Christian. Second thing I've learned is this. Very practically, I do not experience the power of the Holy Spirit very often when, one, I'm not praying for it, and two, I'm not expecting it. Um, A good way to not experience the power of the Holy Spirit is, number one, don't ask for it, and number two, don't look for it. And you probably won't experience it. But here's another thing that I found is that it tends to be when I ask the Holy Spirit for his power and I tend to walk expecting that he's going to answer that prayer, I tend to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so what if you just prayed, Spirit of God, I'm tempted to sin in this moment, real time. Would you fill me? Would you help me? Would you empower me to say no? And then expect that he will. Walk away from that sin. What would it look like if you said, Holy Spirit, today I feel selfish and lazy. I need your power and grace to love my family, to be attentive to my staff, to put myself last, to actually love and care about other human beings on this planet because I don't have the strength right now. Help me to love the guy I just want to choke slam in the office. I need your power. That's a good prayer to pray better than going to jail. Holy Spirit, give me power right now. Holy Spirit, would you help me to be more like Jesus today? Would you empower me at work? I want to do my work as unto the Lord. I want to do everything to the best of my ability to glorify you and to be a good witness, but today I don't feel like it. Would you help me? Would you help me right now in this report, on this presentation, on this thing that I need to get done? Very simply, when I ask for the Spirit, when I ask the Spirit for his power, and when I walk through the day expecting his power, I tend to experience his power. And so let me ask you, in the tone of a coach and encouragement, what would it look like if you woke up every morning and said, Holy Spirit, believe you're real. I'm going to ask for your power today. Would you give me your grace, your power to live out and do everything I need to do today? I think it would change some folks in the room. I think your experience would graduate from just getting goosebumps on a Sunday, which is fine. I'm pro goosebumps to maybe actually having some power to do battle over your sin during the week to actually put some chips of selflessness back into your marriage to actually be a witness in your workplace and in your neighborhood when you quit depending on your own strength and start walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit and we expect the power of the Holy Spirit and we tend to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to fight sin, to look more like Jesus, to walk with God and to live out the purpose of God in our lives. The purpose. In fact, that's the third point I want to give you this morning We've talked about the presence of God in our lives, the power of God in our lives, and I want to talk to you about the purpose of God in our lives. That's point three. Let me show you our key verse one more time. Verse eight, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Here it is. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the power of God fills the people of God through the Spirit of God, it empowers them to live out the purposes of God in your life, which is to be a witness. It's to be a witness for Jesus. It was true of the early church, and it's true of us today. And over the next four months, as we examine this New Testament book of Acts, what we're going to see is that um, the, the promise that Jesus gives the believers right here actually come into fruition. We're over 28 chapters. We're going to see verse 8 serve as a, as a table of contents for the advancement of the gospel throughout the known world. So it starts in Jerusalem. Holy Spirit drops their witness in Jerusalem. 
and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to Rome, and to the ends of the known world, just over 28 chapters. The Spirit drops, the power comes, the purpose is lived out, and the same thing happens for you and for me. Trust Christ. Spirit of God invades your life. You trust him for that power, and he uses you as a witness, as a witness to testify about God and his grace and his love, the very purpose of your life. Now, I want you to notice, let me get kind of technical here for just a second. What is the, um, what is the, the, the nature of the verb? What is the nature of the verb in, in, in verse 8? He says, you will be my witnesses. I want you to notice that that's not a command. And then you need to go be my witnesses, right? It's not a rule. He says, and then you need to go be my witnesses. You need to go get your witness on. You need to go do some witnessing. It doesn't say that. Notice that it's a passive verb. What does it say? And you will be my witnesses. Do you notice that? Jesus is just saying a fact. He's like, I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm just going to tell you what you're going to be. And that is my witness. You are going to be my witness. I think that in Christianity and the evangel or the, um, um, the, the evangelical expression of Christianity that we find ourselves in at City Light, that um, there tends to be a certain weight to this idea of being a witness, doesn't there? This idea of sharing your faith, sharing the gospel with people, doing evangelism, there's a certain weight to that. And in one sense, I think that can be a very good weight. Right? There is an urgency to the gospel message. We believe that heaven and hell and eternity are real. We believe that Jesus really is the only way to the Father and the, the only way to heaven. And one of the first burdens that God places on a Christian's heart when he places his faith in Jesus is there's, there's people that don't know about this yet, aren't there? Yeah, there are. remember being a brand new Christian. That was one of my first burdens. It wasn't what does Leviticus say. It is, it's, do my parents know the Lord, Right? And so in one sense, that's, that's a good burden. We should care. There's an urgency to the gospel message that's appropriate, but I think there's a double edge to that urgency that I would call a level of underlying guilt and insecurity about living out this purpose, which is not a good thing, right? I think the average evangelical Christian just carries around this underlying low-level feeling of guilt and insecurity about the purpose of God that we know we're supposed to be living out. So, so I, I should probably share my faith more. I know I should, I really should, but I don't very often. And, and I probably learned, should learn some more Bible verses so I know what to share when I could share, but I haven't, I haven't had time and now I just kind of feel bad. And I probably should take some more classes on like how to share my faith, but I haven't got around to that. And what can happen is the guilt of all the should do's actually cripples us from which we can do, which Jesus said is to be a witness. What's a witness? A witness is someone who just gives testimony to what they've seen. Doesn't take any special training. Don't got to go to school to, for that. A witness just says, hey, here's what happened. Here's who I was. Here's what changed. And here's who I am now. I don't know the Greek words for that. I don't know the Old Testament reference for that. I just know that I witnessed some things and that's what happened. Jesus invites us to be a witness. I want you to know this morning that Jesus wants to use you as a witness just the way you are. He doesn't want you to be a little more outgoing. He's not waiting for you to take a few more classes. He wants to use you. Your story, your personality, your struggles, your quirkiness, your sphere of influence, right where you are, 
to be a witness, to, to, to tell people your story um, and what Jesus has done for you. That's it. It's to be a witness. E. Stanley Jones is a well-known author and theologian who was a, a missionary in India throughout the early 1900s. And he wrote an autobiography in which he describes the early years of his ministry. And he writes in his autobiography that at first he really struggled as to whether or not God was calling him to be a lawyer or a preacher. And after a season of prayer and discernment, he decided the Lord was calling him to be a preacher. And so he went off to seminary and got trained and trained himself to be a preacher. And at the end of his education, he came back to his hometown, to his home church, wherein he was going to preach his first ever sermon. And so in his hometown, all of his relatives came, his distant relatives, all of his childhood friends came, and they're in the local church, and they're all there watching as he's about to preach his very first sermon. And in his autobiography, he writes about that very first sermon ever. He says that only six sentences into his very first sermon, he accidentally made up and used a word that doesn't even exist. And so he's searching for the vocabulary, and he says a word, and it wasn't a real word. In fact, it was kind of a stupid word. Now, as a side note, I don't see what the problem is with that, because Chris does it every time he preaches, and I think he does fine. He <laughs> gets the point across, I'm just saying. I think he does fine. But, but E. Stanley Jones writes in his book that when he accidentally made up the stupid word, that there was a lady in the front row, and she laughed. Not a harsh laugh, just a, that's cute. And, and she laughed, but he got distracted by the the laugh, and then he started to feel insecure, and then he couldn't collect his thoughts, and then he started to panic and started to sweat, and he just froze. And he just stood there saying nothing for what felt like an eternity of silence. And on another side note, let me just say, I get it. You people are intimidating. You, you think this is easy, come up here and do this and wait till you lose your train of thought. So E. Stanley Jones is intimidated and the longer he waits, the harder it is to break in and eventually just says, forget it. And so he politely dismisses himself and leaves his pulpit and walks down towards his chair that was in the front row of the pew, the room filled with awkward silence. Just like this. And <laughs> it wasn't a very amen, hallelujah kind of church either. That's all right, we'll grow in that together, City Light Church. So he's walking toward his chair in the front row, and he writes in his autobiography that he heard God ask him, Eli, haven't I done anything for you? To which he replied in his heart, uh, well, of course, Lord, you've, you've done so much for me. And God said to him, then couldn't you just tell them about that? To which Eli, again, in his heart just said, well, yes, Jesus, I suppose I could. And so halfway to his seat, he actually does a 180 and about face, and he marches back up to his pulpit, and he takes a moment to kind of collect his thoughts. And and after that moment, he addresses the congregation, and he says, well, uh, it's plain to all of us uh, that I can't preach, but you know my life before and after my conversion. And while I can't preach, I do love the Lord, and I'm going to choose to witness for him for the balance of my days. And for the remainder of the morning, he proceeded to simply share with the congregation how he had found forgiveness for sins and life and joy in a relationship with Jesus. And after his sermon, he writes that a young man came up to him and said, Mr. Jones, um, I want to find what you have found. Can you help me do that? He was a witness. E. Stanley Jones went on to be a missionary in India, sharing Christ with intellectuals, mentoring pastors throughout Asia, and publishing a a number of influential books that have shaped uh, modern Christianity and the missionary movement all throughout the world. City Light, I want you to know this morning that God isn't just looking for more preachers 
or more apologists, okay? Jesus doesn't say, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be a seminary-trained apologist to the ends of the world. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He doesn't say, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive a power, and then you will be a Billy Graham evangelist, filling up auditoriums and stadiums and, and being on network television. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, when you, when, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be a Chris Haruska-level extrovert. Right? People talk to anyone. He doesn't say that. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You know what I want our church to be just really good at? Uh, more than classes on evangelism, those things are helpful. They're practical. I love those. We'll do some of those. But the number one thing I want us to get really good at is just telling our stories. Just telling our stories. I was a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus gave me new life. I was addicted to some stuff and bondage to some things. And I'm not perfect now. But I met Jesus and found some freedom and some forgiveness and some new purpose and a direction for my life. I was a really religious person, stiff and proud, good at keeping the rules and playing church. But Jesus broke into my life and I saw that I was as hell bent and bad as the worst of all rebels. And I entered into the kingdom of God through grace at the invitation of a man named Jesus. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. City Light, there is such a freedom in knowing that God is with us. His presence is inside of us. His power is manifested through us, and he is empowering us to be his witnesses. That's it. I'll end with this. I want to challenge us. Imagine what it would actually look like if, if we really did live with a daily conscious awareness of God's power and God's presence in our lives. Radical idea, I know to actually believe that when God says he is with us, that he is. What if we really started every morning simply praying, Holy Spirit, would you take control today? Would you give me grace to honor the Father in everything I do? Would you give me grace to be a witness to the Son in everything I do? Would you empower me to be a witness for you to others? I want us to be a church that, that isn't just learning about the power of the Holy Spirit this spring, that isn't just cognizant of the fact that he's with us, but actually experiencing the power and leading of the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church. Amen? I want us to experience the power of the Holy Spirit to turn from sin, to honor Christ, to, to be a witness. I want us to be a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered church. Are you with me? The only thing I know to do is to pray that that would happen. And so I want to invite you, would you stand up with me this morning? And, uh, we're going to trust Jesus that when he says he fills us with the Spirit, empowers us with the Spirit, that he actually does that. And so just symbolically of that, you don't catch the Holy Spirit in your hands. Did you know that? So this isn't like uh, it's not coming through your fingertips, so don't take this the wrong way. But just symbolically to remind ourselves of our posture of receiving, I just want to invite you to put your hands out like this. And um, uh, the Holy Spirit's already here. You've trusted Jesus. You don't need a second indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's with you, but I just want us to humbly before the Lord, invite him to actually empower us, to embrace the reality that Jesus is with us and invite him and his power in our lives. And so, Jesus, on this day after Easter, we remember that the good news is still good news, that you um, didn't stay dead, but you're alive, you ascended into heaven, and then you sent down the power of the Holy Spirit to indwell our lives. And Father, um, I think sometimes we're nervous about the Holy Spirit. We're not sure what to do with you, Holy Spirit. You make us a little bit nervous because we saw some weird things on public television and someone fell down and we don't know what category to put that. And so we tend to just not think about you. But, but as we read your word, we just realize what a treasure and gift the Holy Spirit is. 
that he empowers us to be a witness, that he is the one, he is the power source to, to enable us to do everything that you have called us to do. And so Holy Spirit, would you invade our lives? Would you empower us this week? There's some people that are burdened right now with an obligation that they have tomorrow with a strained relationship. They don't know where the words are gonna come from. They're trying to forgive themselves for some stuff that they've done in the past. They're trying to forgive someone else. And God, the, the, the demands on them are beyond the resources that are within them. Would you fill them with your power right now? Would you give them a supernatural, divine empowerment of the Holy Spirit in their life? And God, for our whole church, would you continue to lead us? Would you be our senior pastor? Would you be the one that leads us in our congregation, in our mission, and in our lives? Holy Spirit, would you lead us and empower us? Would you empower us now to respond in worship? Make our hearts glad. Remind us of the good news of Easter and uh, empower us to worship you with our whole hearts now. We pray in Jesus' name and the Holy Spirit of the power, or the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.